If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. Right in the middle of your Bible, huh? Isaiah 55. And let's all stand together as we read from that uh, portion of God's Word. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8. Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 8. The prophet Isaiah speaking on the Lord's behalf. So this is the, the word of the Lord to us. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out with joy." And be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name. For an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Heavenly Father... God, we desire to receive Your instruction now. Would You give it to us by Your Spirit, by Your Word? Would You show us that how while Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and while Your thoughts are certainly not our thoughts at times, that yet still, Lord, we can look to You and find peace, that we can look to You and find comfort, that we can look to you and find answers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Like, like so many other churches uh, today, uh, ministers, pastors, and all those giving messages um, have likely scrapped their sermon in light of the tragedy that occurred some 48 hours ago. Two days ago, we received news of a horrific school shooting in Newtown, Connecticut. In a town of only 27,000 people, in a town ranked the fifth safest city in America of its size, 20-year-old gunman Adam Lanza shot and killed his mother, and then he drove to Sandy Hook Elementary where he killed 26 others, other children, before taking his own life. 20 of those 26 were children, 8 boys, 12 girls, all of them between the ages of 6 and 7. And as horrific as 
We all watched the news unfold. Um, We also saw some incredible moments of heroism. When 24-year-old first grade teacher Caitlin Riog heard the gunfire, she immediately locked her classroom door, herded her students into the bathroom where she locked them in and blocked the door with a tall storage unit, saving each of their lives when the gunman passed by. Another teacher, Mary Rose Christopic, a music teacher, took her fourth grade class, locked them in a closet, She then proceeded to block one door of the classroom with large musical instruments. But she had nothing to block the other door. So instead, she held it tightly with her hand. At one point, the gunman came to the door while she was holding it with her hand. And he screamed, let me in. But Mary Rose held on for dear life until the gunman left the door. She saved her entire class. And then there were other heroes who died trying to help. Principal Don Hawksprung and school psychologist Mary Sherlock were in a meeting with other school teachers. And while the rest of the group instinctively dropped to the floor at the sound of gunshots, Don and Mary ran into the hallway to confront the danger. They were murdered trying to save the children. And then there was the story of 27-year-old first grade teacher Victoria Soto. Victoria had worked at the Sandy Hook Elementary School for five years, 27 years old. When she heard the gunfire, she hurried her students into a closet, hiding them from the gunman. But rather than hiding with them, Victoria went back into the classroom, for she knew the gunman was coming. And as he entered the room, he asked her where the children were. She told them, she told the gunman that the kids were in gym class, and that they weren't there. The gunman then shot and killed Victoria and continued down the hall. Most of us spent uh, Friday watching television and reading news reports of the shooting. I did not. When I first heard that some 20 children who were about my son's age had been shot, I didn't want to know anything more. But you know, willful ignorance is not bliss. We are human beings. We've been made in God's image, and in that image, we experience a range of emotion and feelings, just as God does. I think for most of us, that emotion right now is incredible grief and sorrow and pain at the thought of such unconscionable violence. For others of you, it's also anger toward the shooter, perhaps a deep-rooted desire for justice that is now perhaps frustrated by the gunman's suicide. Still, for others, it may be just mere shock and a feeling of numbness, not having a semblance of understanding how such a thing could happen. A wise person once told me that you cannot fight your feelings. They are what they are. And all we can do is try to understand them and try to maintain the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of them. And at a time like this, 
the first and only thing that we can do is to grieve with those who grieve. On your outline there, we've listed some scriptures. From Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I want to say very plainly and clearly that the first and right response to a tragedy such as this is simply grief and mourning. The first and right response to a tragedy such as this is simply grief and mourning. On the same day of the shooting, within hours of the shooting, uh, two reporters, uh, religion editor, editor reporters from CNN, called the University of Connecticut and they got a hold of one of their Department of Religion professors. And the reporters were calling the religious professor and asking him the question, what do you make of this? What do you, how do you respond to this tragedy? What can religion offer in a time like this? How can religion, how can Christianity account for such suffering, for such evil? And the professor he had a fitting response to the reporters. He said, and I quote, This is an immense tragedy, and you want me to give you an academic speculation on the problem of evil. Before the reporters could respond, the professor hung up the phone. And the reason he did so, the reason he was not going to respond to the reporters' questions some three to four hours after the tragedy had first occurred, was that this professor at the University of Connecticut knew that the first and right response to a tragedy is grief and mourning, period. It is not to engage in academic exercise. It is not for politicians and lawmakers to rise up and, and try to persuade the public of what needs to happen next. Those who react and begin to make major choices and life decisions based on a tragedy such as this, need to slow down, they need to stop, and they just need to grieve and mourn. This is painful. It's not easy. And there's going to be a process to the grief. Some a thousand years before Christ, the Amalekites had invaded a Jewish settlement. They had taken all the women and all the children captive, including some of David's own family, and David and his men, they would eventually, eventually pursue the Amalekites. They would eventually go after them and rescue the captives, defeating their enemies. But before justice came, mourning came. In 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 4, it reads, Then David, when he heard of the captivity, when he heard that the women and the children had been taken away, including members of his own family, it says, Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power to weep. Mind you, this was within hours of the captives being taken away. David's first response was not to run after them, was not to take action. It was to pause and weep and grieve and mourn with his fellow men, his fellow soldiers. 
Four centuries after King David, when Israel was taken captive to Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet, speaking on behalf of the people of Israel, spoke these words in Lamentations 2. They're listed on your outline. I have cried until the tears no longer come. My heart is broken. My spirit is poured out in agony as I see the desperate plight of my people, little children and tiny babies fainting and dying in the streets. Again, this was after Israel had been taken away, enslaved to Babylon. Jeremiah had nothing better to do, and the people had nothing else to do than to just weep and mourn the tragedy. He says elsewhere in Lamentations 5, The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dancing has turned to mourning. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of this, our eyes grow dim. The first and right response to a tragedy such as this is grief and mourning. You can't ignore these feelings. Some of you who have uh, feelings of anger or justice um, toward the shooter, we can't ignore these feelings. We must acknowledge them. We must deal with them in a process that takes time, that is sometimes messy, uh, that sometimes lingers on for many days, weeks, months, and for the victim's family's years. Too many jump too quickly to taking action. And yet still, I, I do want to address those who uh, attempt to exploit tragedies like these. Because you see, as we grieve, and as the nation grieves, and rightly so, there are others who are going to start to take advantage of the situation. Others who are going to exploit the tragedy. And then there are those like all of us who are going to ask some natural questions in time, if we haven't already. Those questions would include, why, God? Why did you let this happen? Why would you allow this to happen? For some of us, those questions are, are mentioned very humbly to the Lord. We, we look up and we ask the question in humility. We're not demanding answers, but we're seeking understanding. But still for others, they ask the why God question. The why did you let this happen? The why did do you allow such evil? But they ask it with a tone of defiance with a tone of superiority, that they know better, that there's no way that this was a wise thing of God to permit. Critics and skeptics, atheists and agnostics, they pounce on opportunities like these. Shootings like the one in Newtown are fodder for many who seek to undercut the Christian faith. And their accusations are quite common, and I want us as a church to be ready for these accusations in time. They're already coming. The accusations against God in the midst of great tragedy are fourfold. Number one, there's the accusation that God is impotent. Impotent, I-M-P-O-T-E-N-T. That is to say that He's powerless. That He can't help. 
Many accuse God in moments like these, a shooting in Newtown at a school, a shooting in Aurora, Colorado, a civil war in Syria, a shooting at a a place of worship in Wisconsin. People look at these moments and they say God is powerless. He's impotent. He cannot help. A second accusation that some would throw up to God is that, God, you're incompetent. You're incompetent. You don't understand what's going on. You don't understand how to help. You couldn't possibly help because you have no understanding of what's taking place down here. You're so transcendent. You're so far, far away. You're so high above. You don't know how to help. A third accusation against God, and the one leveled against Him most. God, you must be indifferent. You must be indifferent. Or worse, malicious, spiteful. You don't care. You don't care about what happened. Or, or maybe you were intentionally spiteful toward the victims. You either don't care about us or you take some delight in this. You're indifferent or worse, you're malicious. These three accusations, especially the third, are the ones I hear most often from those who do not believe. And many in my own family have Uh, said to me, you know, Neil, I see evil. I see evil all the time. And I just can't believe that a loving God would allow such evil. I can't believe that, Neil. And so either God is indifferent, and that makes no sense to me, or He doesn't exist at all. Because this tragedy is too great. This suffering is too severe. God must be indifferent. How could a loving God allow such a thing? But you know, friends, each of these three accusations, none of them are true. In fact, were you to open up the Scriptures and walk through all of its pages, particularly the Christmas story, which we're in the midst of celebrating now, you would know instinctively they're not true. You see, God is not impotent. He's not powerless. He is the creator and sustainer of all that exists. Write that down in your outline. God is not impotent. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. The story of Scripture tells us that. Secondly, we know that God is not incompetent. Instead, He is infinitely wise and all-knowing. The Proverbs speak over and over again of God's wisdom. The wisdom that He gave to Solomon. The wisdom that He spoke to us through James. These are books, words of Scripture that are filled with wisdom and knowledge and truth. Good teaching. God is not an incompetent God. He's infinitely wise. He's all-knowing. Lastly, God is not indifferent. Indifferent. 
He is not spiteful. In fact, just the contrary. He cares so much that He sent His Son to die for us. He loves us so much that He forgives us. He eternally saves us and every sinner when we turn to Jesus in faith. That's how much God loves us. He's not indifferent. And He is certainly not spiteful. He loves us. And the the story of Christmas is evidence of that. Why else would God sacrifice His Son for sinners? He had no reason to do so for selfish gain. It was only because of unconditional love. If you're reading the Christ story in the Gospels, and as the New Testament declares it, it cannot be said of the God of the Bible that He's impotent, or that He's incompetent, or that He's indifferent. None of those things are true of the God of the Bible. Just the opposite is true. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. But there remains a fourth accusation against God. And this accusation is true. This accusation is true. The fourth accusation against God is that He is, at times, incomprehensible. Incomprehensible. That God does things at times or allows things to happen at times that from a frail and human standpoint don't make sense. Incomprehensible. God tells us that this accusation is true. We read about it in Isaiah 55. We'll read it again. Isaiah 55, verse 8. For my thoughts, the Lord says, are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The creation of the world why He arranged it in the way that He did. There's so much about God that we cannot know, do not know, and will never know in this life. There are some things about God that are totally and utterly incomprehensible from a this earthly standpoint. And we look at these things, and we look at these unfoldings, these events, these massacres, these shootings, these civil wars, this evil, and we think, I don't understand this. Why would God permit this? And God responds. He he told you how He responds. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. The heavens are higher than the earth, and so are my thoughts higher than yours. God is incomprehensible at times. And yet, in the midst of an incomprehensible moment, that's where we are, 
We're in the midst, as a nation, of an incomprehensible tragedy where we, we don't have a context for it. We can't put it into a neat little box. We can't explain it, and I'm not sure that we ever will. But in the midst of that incomprehensibility, there are two things that are firm. There are two things that we can know about God. And I want us to rest in those today. The first is this. Two things that we do know about God. The first, God would rather let human beings be free than to forcibly dictate their actions. Number one, God would rather let human beings be free than to forcibly dictate their actions. You say, how can we know this? Well, we know this about God because it's how He made the world. He hasn't forced us into a perfect world. He hasn't forced human beings to love Him. The story of this universe is that God lets us choose. That He lets some love Him freely and He lets others turn away from Him freely. And in that freedom, in that choice that God has given to every human agent, He has demonstrated how much He loves them by giving them that choice. You see, because it's one thing to seek out love and companionship by force. It is one thing to seek out love and companionship forcibly, to force it upon someone. You will love me. You must love me. You will be my companion. You will be my friend. But it's quite another to receive love and to receive companionship from one who does not need to give it. From one who is free to either give it or withhold it. You see, those same skeptics, those same people who mock God, who decry God's hesitancy to stop a mass murderer, these same people who mock God, who say, God, how could you not stop this mass murderer who, who walked into a school, who killed six and seven-year-olds, how could you not stop him? Those same people who decry God for not intervening would be the same ones equally enraged if they were told they had no choice but to love God. If you had no choice but to be forcibly pushed to your knees, prostrate, and obediently, forcibly worshiping Him all of your days. On the one hand, they decry, they rise up in anger saying, God, how could you not intervene? How could you not forcibly intervene in the situation? And on the other hand, were God to say, fine, all of it is going to be forced. Your love for me, your worship of me, everything is going to be forced upon you. They would say, no, 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 I don't want that. You see, God values freedom. 
And in this we see the love of God. The love of God. The beauty of the marriage relationship is that it brings together a man and a woman freely. They don't have to, they're not forcibly put together, at least not in the West. They're not forcibly put together and say, you must, you will, you are compelled to, you have no choice but. Instead, it's two people who come freely, who come willingly of their own accord and make a vow freely, make a commitment freely. And in that we see true love. And it's interesting, in cultures where the marriage is forced, in cultures where the marriages are arranged, it is inevitably the case that the quality of those relationships decline, that the quality of those bonds are not as strong, because it's not free. God values freedom, and in this we see the love of God. By that freedom... But, but in that freedom, it also means that God does not always force Himself upon us in times of distress. It means that just as He gives us room to love Him and to choose Him, He also gives us room to disobey Him and to walk away from Him, to forsake Him, to freely choose evil. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the great restrainer, that He is... The Holy Spirit, He is active in the world. He is restraining evil. But because God values human freedom, there are times when the restraint of the Spirit is lifted. There are times when the restraint of the Holy Spirit is eased. And when the omnipresent protection of God is temporarily lifted, so many rise up and say, God, how could you? Ironic. What we saw in the massacre in Newtown was a moment, a moment in time where human freedom was let loose completely, unrestrained by God. Human beings, we instinctively rage against that which is forced upon us. We don't want to be forced to love God. We don't want to be forced to obey God. We'd rather have a choice. Yet when God gives us raw and undiluted freedom, And when one young man uses that freedom to kill 20 children, far be it from us to return to God and shake our fist at Him and say, how could you? We cannot do such things. We cannot question in that tone. It's okay to question, but not with clenched fist. Isaiah 29, verse 16 on your outline. Surely, surely, you have things turned around. Shall the potter be esteemed as the clay? For shall the thing made say of him who made it, He did not make me. Or shall the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Surely you have things turned around. You're backwards in your thinking. Job chapter 40, 
Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. The story of Scripture is one in which mankind blesses God when all is well and seems to often curse Him when things don't go as they had hoped. And yet in all of it, God's giving us freedom. Who are we to contend with Him? Who are we to have clenched fist? Number two, a second thing we know about God. We know, number one, that He values freedom more than forcing our hand. And, such, and so we see what we saw on Friday. But number two, a second thing we know about God is that history demonstrates that whenever God allows evil, His goodness always follows. Whenever God allows evil, His goodness always follows. And you know what? We are already seeing this. We're already seeing God's goodness unfold. We're starting to learn of more of the stories about how teachers protected the students, how first responders and chaplains in the community are responding to the victims and they're uh, responding to the victims' families in love. In fact, there are some good things in this life that you and I live that could not be without evil. There are some things in this life that would not exist, good things, that would not exist were there not a backdrop of evil. Philosophers, particularly Christian philosophers, call these things second-order goods. That is to say, they are virtues of a second kind, of a second tier. Without evil, without sin, these virtues would not exist. You say, what are you talking about? I say, think of courage. Think of bravery. Do you suppose, in a perfect world, there could be such thing as a courageous man? A brave woman in a perfect world? No such thing. The very virtue of courage, the very virtue of bravery, what is intrinsic to those virtues is that they look adversity in the face, they look sin in the face, they look death in the face, and they say, I will rise up still. Without a world of sin, courage and bravery would not exist. Think of patience. Patience is precisely the kind of virtue that waits with long-suffering in the face of hardship. Think of mercy. Think of sympathy. How could someone be merciful in a world where there was nothing to show mercy about? How could I wrap my arms around someone in sympathy if there was nothing to cry about? And yet still, the gift of mercy is listed as a spiritual gift in Scripture. Without sin, without evil, mercy would not exist. And yet it does exist. And it is good. It is pleasant. When I come upon a merciful person, I'm always encouraged by them. I'm always uplifted by a person of mercy. They do such good for me. Many other second order goods could be said beyond mercy, beyond sympathy, beyond patience, beyond courage, beyond bravery. Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Would it, is it not the case that if love is unconditional, that it too 
continues faithfully forward in the midst of adversity and hardship. All of these things, through every storm, through every trial, courage, bravery, mercy, sympathy, patience, unconditional love, all of them deeply good virtues, all of them non-existent in a perfect world. Good will come from this tragedy. It already is. Wait patiently for more. It is easy to question God, but the better path is to look again at us in the midst of this tragedy. It is so easy to have clenched fists toward the Lord and say, why, why, why? And yet, how often are we looking in, introspectively, and considering just what part we may have played as human beings? To remind ourselves, no matter what our relationship is to the tragedy in Newtown, to remind ourselves that sin destroys, sin corrupts, Sin tears down. It breaks things. You know, we cringe at the horrific loss of life on Friday. And yet, how quickly do we dispel? How quickly do we just get rid of the significance of our own sinful actions that also harm and destroy? Oh, our sin may not take physical life. Our sin might not take the form of the massacre of 20 children. But let us not kid ourselves. My sin kills. My sin destroys. My sin breaks things apart. I sat in my office this last week with an undocumented worker whom I've known for um, a number of months now. And uh, she informed me about three, two to three weeks ago that uh, her husband had left her and her three children, that he had returned to Mexico, and that she could only, survive, could only account for $400 a month in income, and she didn't know what she was going to do. I had a conversation with her husband over the phone, pleading with him, please come back to your wife. Please come back to your children. You have no idea what you're doing. And yet he left. Sin destroys. Sin kills. It harms. It tears apart. And this young mother with three beautiful children, she doesn't know what to do next. Whether it's a massacre in Newtown of 20 innocent children, or whether it's a simple decision by a husband or wife to walk away from a marriage, your sin kills. It will destroy. It will bring great harm. How can we respond in the midst of these feelings in the midst of these emotions. I want to give us four points of application today to walk away with. The first, I want us to, as we ought to, weep and mourn. 
Expressing our emotions is healthy, healthy, and the grieving process is right and good. Weep and mourn. Expressing our emotions is healthy, it's good, and the grieving process is right and good. Um, it'll go on for some of you for a while. It's okay. It should. For others of us, we'll internalize it more. That's usually what I do. Um, Usually it's, uh, you know, it's not always tears for me. It's just, you know, a sadness on the way. It's a sadness as we go. Whatever it is, the emotions that you have, it's okay. Express them. Talk about them with friends, with your spouse. Let the grieving process go forward. No need to jump to action so fast. Number two, questioning God is natural. It's natural. Read the Psalms. That's all that David does is question God. But let us ever reevaluate the human demands we ask of God. Am I both, think about this, am I both demanding undiluted freedom of choice and that also He keep me from all evil? Is that even possible? Is that fair of you? You can question God, but it's the tone of the questioning that matters. And if you're both demanding freedom and demanding unilateral protection, God looks at you and says, you can't have both. Do you want a free world? Or do you want a forcible world? Number three, rest in this. Trust the sometimes incomprehensible God. Trust the sometimes incomprehensible God. He sees the panoramic viewpoint within which we only see in part. He sees the panoramic. We see a microcosm of it. He knows what's going to unfold. We don't. Trust Him. When Jesus was on the cross, the disciples thought, all is lost. Jesus said, just wait. Just wait. I will rise again. Number four, in Christ, in Jesus, God has proven He's not indifferent He's not spiteful towards us. Instead, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So if God allows evil, it must be for some good reason. In Christ, God's proven He's not indifferent or certainly not spiteful. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So if God allows evil, it must be for some good reason. I close again with the words of Isaiah. As the rain comes down, and the snow from heaven, it does not return there. Instead, it waters the earth, makes it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower, bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what, it, what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And my ways are higher than your ways. For you shall go out with joy, and you shall be led out with peace. And the mountains and the hills shall break forth in singing before you. All the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress tree. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. And it shall be to the Lord for a name, a namesake, what He does in the midst of this. For an everlasting sign 
that shall never be cut off. Heavenly Father, Lord, we as a people, as frail human beings, we don't know what to do in the midst of a time like this. We are looking upon perhaps the worst massacre of children in American history. And God, we have no context for this. We don't understand it. We have so many emotions and feelings. We're starting to ask why. God, would you, by your Spirit, help us in this process? Would you watch over our tone? Would you give us self-control as we question? Would you remind us, Lord, that you've given us freedom? That you loved us and so you gave us freedom? And that sometimes we can abuse that freedom. Surely it was abused in Newtown, but we all abuse it whenever we sin. Sin harms, sin destroys, sin kills, Lord. We're well aware of that. So, Lord, help us to be repentant as a people, confessing our sins to you, seeking to turn back to you, that this nation, God, would turn back to you. There'll be many calls of action in the coming days about school security, about guns, about violence, about psychological training and care. But Lord, let the one action that rises above it all, let it be the action of the church. As the church rises up to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, and to look inside ourselves to be reminded of our own sinfulness, of our own participation in the evil of this world, and to turn back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.